Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 13, Introduction to GMless Games, recorded and presented by Jason Morningstar at Gen Con 2012. So my name is Jason Morningstar. I'm uh, the co-founder of Bully Pulpit Games. We're a small press game company based in North Carolina. And as it happens, all of the games we produce commercially, role-playing games, tabletop analog role-playing games, have been uh, GMless. And so I thought it would be uh, interesting and fun to give a panel talking about games, analog tabletop role-playing games, that uh, uh, don't use a game master. So uh, show of hands, how many people have played a GMless game? What are you guys doing here? Okay. All right. So, so my intention today is to uh, talk to you about uh, role-playing games that don't incorporate a game master, uh, give you some examples of games that do that, and talk about why that works, how it works, and uh, maybe get you excited about that as a concept. So, uh, what does a game master do? I'm asking you. This is going to be uh, uh, interactive, hopefully, and feel free to stop me if you have questions. Tell us a story. The GM tells a story, uh, so he's got authority over the narrative, right? What else does a good game master do? Facilitates the Absolutely. Uh, it provides adversity, right? Uh, gets to say who says what and when, right? So there's a social moderation role there. Uh, uh, apportioning the spotlight, something a game master does, right? So if uh, you have a quiet player and a very boisterous player, one of the things a game master does is say, okay, all right, cool it, let's, let's hear what the quiet player has to say. Uh, does the game master decide when we go to the dice? Often. Uh, also, uh, what kind of dice we use, right? So a game master often has the authority to say, well, uh, you're going to get a minus three to that role because of your positioning. So they have an, uh, a sort of an adjudication role. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the story, they have uh, some authority over engagement, right? So the universe of characters and situations that the player characters are going to encounter. Uh, and that stuff's all pretty cool. And that is honestly the stuff that I think is super fun. So what's something a Game Master never has authority over? What the players do. Free will. Free will. What, the, what the characters do from the player's point of view, right? So it's my guy, and I can say that he's going to do something or that he's not going to do something. And uh, the game master typically doesn't have any control over that. A good example of that uh, going really, really wrong. I, I, uh, I ran a sort of a pulp, steampunky kind of campaign, and I thought it'd be really cool if one of my friend's characters, who was sort of an upright uh, British officer, got river blindness. So you know he'd be infected, and, and he'd be slowly going blind. It'd be the sort of tragic arc for his character, and maybe he would search for a cure, and maybe it'd be you know awesome. And I said, well, you know, you've, you've got river blindness. Your, your guy's going, you know, he's going blind. And my friend Patrick looked at me and said, no, he's not. Right? No, not going to happen. I don't want that to happen. That's not going to happen. And my response to that was, you're right, it's not going to happen. Because that's the, the, the limits of Game Master Authority had been transgressed in that case. Now, playing in other situations with other people, someone might have been like, oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that gift. Uh, that's super cool. I can't wait to explore the you know pathos of that situation. But Patrick wasn't buying it, and our social contract did not include me arbitrarily giving his guy river blindness. So uh, you know that's that's something to think about. 
it is something that uh, you have to consider that uh, a game master may or may not be able to, uh, to bring to the table. So what happens when we give players agency and erode uh, traditional authority a little bit? Uh, so uh, that, that's an example of a player uh, declaring their own agency. He was like, well, that's not going to happen because I, as a player, refuse to allow that to become real in our world. And if you, as a game master, insist that it does, then we have a problem between you and me, a social problem between Jason and Patrick. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's a hard boundary. Uh, but, but let's think of some examples of uh, fairly traditional situations where players do have some agency. Uh, how about blue booking, uh, where uh, you're gonna, the game master is going to reward you in one way or another because you uh, write a detailed character backstory. Uh, he's giving you a lot of authority in that, or she is giving you a lot of authority over uh, what's going what's to comprise that information about your character. Uh, and in exchange, maybe you get some reward for that. But that's clearly providing agency for a player that's really the, pur the purview of the game master, right? So if the GM's job is to create the narrative and tell the story, uh, by allowing a character to, or a player to blue book for their character, you're really giving them a little bit of, uh, a little bit of that uh, and taking it away from yourself. I think that's great, but that's just an example of something that, uh, that you can do. Ultimately, uh, that's going to probably make the game better because as the game master, then you can read all this detailed stuff and find cool hooks and find things to explore, use it or ignore it. But if you go a little further and you start using uh, mechanics like hero points, fake points, uh, ways for uh, players, uh, bennies, the drama deck and Torg, all this stuff is, uh, these are uh, things that are sort of metagame ways for the, the GM to give the players a little bit of authority. Um, and uh, that authority is often delimited. So, uh, you know, you're going to get a fake point and you're going to be able to use that to influence a future role. And that may or may not have any causality within the game. It may not make sense, uh, but it's something, it's a resource that, that you're giving to, 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 uh, to modify the game a little bit from the point of view of the players, to give them agency. And uh, that's also uh, a very interesting and engaging uh, uh, technique. Uh, and that can go even further. I know that in a game like Spirit of the Century or the, the, the Fate family of games, there are uh, aspects you can take that allow you to author stuff, right? So you've got an aspect that allows you to say, actually, uh, flying cars can do the following things. And the game master, according to the rules, has to be like, you're right. That's how flying cars work because you are the world's greatest scientist. It says so right in your character sheet. Um, and uh, so again, giving somebody agency. So, so I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the, the idea of authority is not absolute. It's a, it's, a, it's a scale. It's a continuum, right? On one end, you have the Viking hat GM who is doing everything except saying what your characters do and, and what they think and what they feel, uh, and, on the, and maybe even some of that. And then on the other hand, you've got completely loosey-goosey, crazy games that don't have any centralized authority at all. And I'm interested in introducing sort of the, the spectrum and letting you think about that. Um, another, another way that you've probably seen uh, authority being uh, changed around a little bit is with uh, games where you're co-GMing or you're sharing GMing uh, responsibilities, or you have a big campaign but everybody uh, runs their part of it. Or uh, when you go to this city, it's Joe's city and Joe runs adventures there. Again, you know, you're you're sharing authority. So let's think about uh, ways that we might arrange uh, authority differently. 
what about a game where the GM doesn't have much control over the task, where what the characters are doing is not really part of his authority? And you get a game like 316, which is a really cool game, but as the game master of 316, you know exactly what the characters are going to be doing, and you don't really get to change that. Um, and I'm happy to go back and talk about these games, uh, too. And, and the games that I'm mentioning here uh, are all games that have a Game Master. So uh, this is, again, these are just uh, ways that you can tweak uh, authority a little bit. A game where you don't have any control over the group. What the group does, uh, what the party does, uh, is completely outside your purview. Um, they're going to do crazy stuff, and you don't really have any, uh, a any part of creating that. Uh, you're just asking and answering questions about that. A game like Apocalypse World. Uh, how about a game uh, where you don't have any control over engagement, uh, where the, uh, the characters in the setting are literally sort of creating stuff and the uh, uh, players are answering their own questions as they play. You get a game like Inspectors. And these are all s sort of small press indie kinds of games uh, that I'm mentioning here, but here's some that aren't. How about a game where the Game Master doesn't have much control over the setting and situation, the, the, the narrative components in the backstory. You get a game like Amber, right? It's in an extremely detailed uh, fictional universe that's already been established. Okay, here's a crazy one. What about a game where uh, the, uh, the Game Master has many of the traditional roles, but, the, but there's one player who's in charge of saying what all the characters do most of the time. And there's another player who's in charge of accounting, record keeping, and stuff. What game is that? That's original D&D. Uh, so, the idea of dividing up authority in different ways is not, not only is it not uh, crazy and heterodox, but it's, you know, it's, it's there in the, uh, the roots of the hobby. So, so, I've talked about games where, you know, you've got a pretty traditional setup. You've got a game master, you've got some players, and maybe the amount of agency that they, uh, that they have is divided up in different ways. But what happens when you do things really crazy? Right? What happens when you uh, divide it up in ways that are uh, even more uh, exotic? Well, you're starting to get into a game that is GM-less, and it's not really voodoo. So uh, GM-less itself is a bad term uh, because uh, really in a game where you're dividing authority more or less equally around the table, it, it, you're not, you don't get away from having a game master. You have a bunch of game masters. So maybe a better term would be GM-full, but that sounds stupid. Um, or uh, there are other, other terms that have been floated around for this, like... Um, round table play. Uh, there's really not a great word for this, but the, but the idea is the same, whatever you want to call it. And GMless, for whatever reason, seems to have hit, uh, hit some resonance. That's the term that people use. When people say that, even though it's not technically accurate, uh, you kind of know what you're getting into. If someone says, hey, you want to play a GMless game? You probably know that you're going to be expected to provide many of the skills and tools that a game master would provide, even though you're a player in the game. So here's a question for you guys. So what are some things that a uh, really good GM brings to the game that you think you might miss if that role gets scattered? Okay, spontaneous ideas. Uh, you mentioned insight into the rules. You mean like rules mastery? Yes. Having somebody who really kind of gets it and knows. And that is often the role the game master plays, right? Um, they're the person who uh, is uh, a subject matter expert with the rules of the game. It's, it's true. On a similar vein, um, ease of entry for new players, if they're immediately being asked to take on a portion of the Game Master role, that's a little more intimidating than if they were just starting as a player character. Sure, that, that, uh, that can be true. Um, I, I would, I would uh, 
I would argue that's not always true, but it, but it can be. And we can discuss that more. I'd like to. You have another? Yeah, here's one I'm curious about. Is usually the game master provides this sort of balancing effect of the environment, the world sort of against the players, providing uh -huh. the challenges, and it might be you know, too easy in a cooperative game for everybody to just make it. It's true. In a, in a cooperative game, that would be true. Um, and uh, uh, there needs to be a way for adversity to be created. And we'll, we'll talk about how some of that is done. Usually it's done in some kind of mechanical way. Uh, a couple more, and then we'll move on. I'd say a very big one for a lot of groups is that uh, a GM provides arbitration that is yep. decisive and quick. Absolutely. So uh, the role of referee. So I'm hearing facilitation. I'm hearing uh, being a referee. Um, being an author, having someone whose creative vision is going to, you know, carry the day. Um, being a director or an editor, right? Being the guy who can say, okay, that's done, let's move on. Uh, being the guy who can say, let's have a cool scene uh, underneath a waterfall, you know, whatever. Um, those are all absolutely things that, that, the, uh, um, that a GM typically brings to the table and that, honestly, we'll miss if it's not there. Um, and the, the big question then is, how do we get that stuff? How do you get it in a game where... For example, authority is, is evenly distributed among everybody at the table. So I've got the same creative contribution that you do, and you do, and you do. We're all in the same situation. Well, um, GMless play, to a large degree, relies on trust, right? You, you need to trust the people uh, that you're playing with, and uh, you really need to not be a dick, because these games will break if, if, you, uh, if you push them too hard. And that's just the reality of it. I, I don't think that's really any different from uh, a game that has uh, a more traditional GM. Uh, those games will break as well. Uh, if, if somebody doesn't say, hey, you're being a dick, stop. You know, don't do that. That's not cool. Um, and often, these games, uh, GMless games, are going to have technology that, that helps make this work, right? There are going to be procedures and rules in place that are going to mediate and mitigate both behavior and uh, fictional content. Um, and uh, this also means, uh, and this is an important point, that uh, typically in a GMless game, immersion is going to have to take a sub subordinate role to metagame concerns often. So uh, I'm the guy uh, that's playing my character and I'm super into it, but when it comes time to adjudicate or create some adversity or do some of the stuff that, that uh, a game master might otherwise do and let me stay completely into it, there's a piece of me that's going to have to be managing those things as well. And many games... Uh, find ways to sort of parcel that out to other people, but it, it's never 100%. You're never going to get that sort of binary relationship where there's two roles, player and game master. So you, uh, you emerge and suffers. And if you're somebody who loves to immerse in your character, uh, you may find a GMless games incongruous or difficult or not fun. And I recognize that, and I think that's totally legitimate. If, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. Um, I'm drawn to them because I love being a game master. I love those pieces of the game, and I want to share it with everybody at the table. Um, one of the things that I think is important is that in a, in, in a, in a GMless game, you've got five brains all working on this stuff at once. And so when I'm, when I'm a game master with a group of players, it's, I'm on the spot. I'm making stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to make it as colorful and evocative and interesting and unexpected as, as possible. Uh, when I'm playing a GMless game, there's other people who are doing the same thing, and we're reaching consensus uh, typically on the best of those five things. Uh, and often it's better, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's definitely a benefit. Um, and that, you know, that's going to that's gonna vary uh, group to group a little bit, I suspect. Um, 
so I talked about technology, right? Um, you know, the idea that you're using the game's uh, mechanics and currency to do stuff that a game master might otherwise do. Uh, a really good example that I think was brought up earlier is pacing, right? So a game master can be like, okay, guys, let's uh, kick it into high gear here. We've still got two fights to go before we get to go home. Uh, and uh, that is something that doesn't go away if you're playing a GMless game. If anything, it gets worse, right? Um, so what, what ends up happening quite often in GMless game design is that pacing becomes mechanical. So uh, the game is going to last for 16 scenes, for example. And when 16 scenes are done, the game is done. Uh, or uh, we've got a stack of resources, and when the resources run out, so does our story. And there's more and less elegant ways to do that, but uh, the idea of finding a mechanical way to pace things is pretty common. Um, and uh, something, we mentioned theme that the, the, the game master can provide, uh, an, an overarching uh, story that has a particular themes behind it. That's something that uh, typically in GMS play you just you negotiate beforehand. Like, we're going to tell a story that's going to be about loss. We're going to tell a story that's melancholy. We're going to tell a story about kicking ass. Um, and uh, that's... Uh, on a social level, that's something you, you more need to do because there's not a central person being like, tonight we're going to talk about being melancholy. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Um, uh, I, I would have mentioned uh, that uh, many of these games are paced uh, in rigid ways where you have a, a fixed number of scenes or a fixed amount of time. That works with apportioning spotlight time as well. Uh, it's very common for a GMless game to be uh, pretty strict about turn-taking. So... It's my scene, it's about my guy, here's what's happening. Now it's your scene about your guy, here's what's happening. Now it's his scene about his guy. And uh, uh, that is a way to manage that spotlight time, which on a social level, a GM would, would often handle. Um, not all games do that, but many GMless games do, in fact, do that. Um, and just like, a, just like a more traditional game, uh, you know the the outcomes, the the uh, adverse the outcomes to adversity, right? Uh, they can be reached in all kinds of ways. They can be random. They can be by consensus. They can be collective. They can be tasked to an individual. There's a really cool game called Archipelago that I'm going to talk about a lot because it's my favorite game ever. And uh, in Archipelago, uh, you uh, when when it, when your character is in a situation where there's a challenge, where we don't know whether they're going to succeed or not. You have to uh, determine whether they succeed or fail, and then you also have to appoint somebody else to interpret that for you. So, uh, so I would draw a card, and the card. Will, so, the question is: Do I stab my uncle in the neck? Right? I'm going to try to kill my uncle. I'm going to stab him. Do it? Can I do it? I flip a card over, and it's either uh, some variant on yes or some variant on no. So maybe it's yes and something else even better happens, or no but. Uh, you get some advantage. Uh, and so, there, so there's a card that says, uh, yes, but, for example. Yes, you stab your uncle in the neck, but it's going to cause you long-lasting harm. And I have to say, hey, Steve, uh, I want you to, to interpret that for me. And Steve looks at the card and tells me, all right, you've killed your uncle, uh, but everybody knows it. Now what are you going to do? Right? Uh, so I'm surprised because a third person has injected some uncertainty into that outcome. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's an element of randomness, but it's not, uh, it's not completely within my, uh, my control, right? Um, typically, in a GMless game, you're, you're rolling to be surprised, basically, right? You, you, uh, your outcomes are things that are going to take the story in a different direction, and that's really what you're, uh, what you're looking at. 
I'll, uh, the, the final piece that, that I, I just want to point out is that a lot of these games uh, have world and situation building built into them, right? So you're, uh, you're, the, the creative process is channeled so that you're like going to create uh, the, the situation in which you're going to play before you begin. So in my game Fiasco, you, uh, you generate a situation that includes relationships between all the, all the player characters and stuff that's really important to them, stuff that they need, places that they care about, objects that are important to them. And uh, putting all that together tells you exactly what the game's about. And you do all that before you even know who your characters are. So like, I know that you are my creepy meth dealer brother and that you are my uh, mom who desperately wants to get me into the, the chicken business. And uh, you know we, we build this situation, and when it, when that is done, we know we know exactly what's going to happen in that game. Uh, and there are m most uh, GMless games are going to do that in one way or another. Um, and I'm happy to I'm going to talk about some of these games and like the things that are particularly interesting about them. Uh, I'm going to do that briefly, and then we can just have a conversation about this stuff. So uh, some games that these are all games that I like. So there's a bias uh, toward things that I like, but that's cool, right? Um, uh, so there's a game called Breaking the Ice, uh, which is a two-player game about romance. Uh, you, you and one other person, and it's a role-playing game where you're finding out whether these two characters that you create are going to have a future together, because they go on three different dates. And at the end of three dates, you find out whether they're going to uh, stay uh, as a couple or whether they're going to break up. So that's pretty cool. It's an unusual theme. It's a two-player game, and it works very well as a GMless game because it's two players, right? I mean, uh, it has to kind of work that way, and it does. Works great. Um, there's a game called Polaris, uh, and a uh, a hack for Polaris called Thou Art But a Warrior, which takes it from a fantasy setting to uh, 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 Moorish Spain during the Reconquista. Um, but anyways, the basic, the basic cool thing about Polaris is that um, it incorporates uh, ritual phrases. So the way, the way conflict works in Polaris is that uh, you sort of say what you want and then someone else makes a, a sort of ritual counter offer. So I'm, I'm like, I'm stabbing my uncle in the face and, and my adversary in the scene says, but only if he stabs you in the face too. And you go back and forth with these ritual phrases until somebody either uh, agrees, and then they say, so it was, or they say, you ask far too much, and then you sort of back up. And it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting way to handle uh, com conflict uh, in, in a way that's uh, very dynamic and social, uh, but also keeps it very controlled, very tightly controlled. It's a very elegant game. Uh, I mentioned uh, how many of these games are very rigid and how they work in Polaris. It's a four-player game, full stop. And uh, the person sitting across from you is always your adversity. They're always the person who's just making your life hell. And you are making their life hell. And, and it sort of switches around. And uh, the other two people are uh, sub subordinate roles that inject uh, stuff into those conflicts. And you just sort of rotate around the table. Uh, so it's very, very rigid in that way, which is uh, really nice and very effective. There's a game called Contenders, which is about boxing. And uh, con Contenders is an explicitly competitive game. So like you're playing a boxer and all the, the player character boxers are going to fight. And eventually there's going to be the final prize match where somebody's going to get all the purse. And uh, so there's a piece of this game that is explicitly, aggressively competitive. Um, and there's the boxing mini game that's part of Contenders is really fun. And you, you, you really feel like you're sort of in the ring doing boxing stuff. And I don't care about boxing, but uh, Contenders makes it cool. And then 
outside the ring, you've got hope and pain, and you're trying to you know keep things together, and people you care about, you've got to win the fight, and it's it's great. Um, but the thing that's super interesting about contenders is that it's a competitive GMless game. There's no getting along with each other. There's no consensus. We're not just telling a fun story. You're beating each other in the face. Um, <laughs> highly recommended. Um, I wrote a game called Great Ranks, uh, which is uh, uh, it's a historical game. It's about the Warsaw Uprising. You play uh, teenagers during the Warsaw Uprising. So it's super intense. It's about the intersection of... Uh, you know, youth and romance and total genocidal warfare. Um, and the, when those things collide, what happens? Uh, so uh, the the thing that I, I think is interesting about it is that it teaches you a little bit about history. There's a very guided historical theme to the game. And also that it's a cooperative game because you're a crew fighting the Nazis uh, that degenerates into a competitive game as your resources dwindle. So at some point during the game... Um, switches are flipped and the things that your characters care about most in the world are the only things left that can give the other players die roll bonuses. Um, so, uh, you know, at some point you've got to be like, well, if, if we want to succeed in this mission, your grandma has to die. That's just how it is. Uh, so it becomes a little intense. Grey Ranks is uh, well regarded, but nobody plays it. <laughs> it's a cool game. Uh, uh, I, I believe it's a Swedish game called Until We Sink that is uh, one of the most innovative and crazy games I've seen. It's sort of a radical freeform game. Uh, you're, you play, it, it takes place on an island in the South Pacific that is literally sinking into the ocean. And uh, you're either a tourist at the last remaining hotel on this island or you're a native that works at the hotel. And there's been a murder, so it's like a murder mystery on a sinking island. Uh, it's crazy, uh, but it's really fun, uh, and uh, it's got a super unusual theme, and it uses uh, cards, cards that give you more information about the setting and about the mystery that's taking place as a pacing mechanism. Uh, as the cards uh, go away, the island sinks until finally it's gone, and either you resolve the mystery or you don't. Uh, really weird, really weird game, but I love it so much. Um, and it's an interesting idea uh, 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 of uh, a way that you can you can go with with not having a central adjudicator um, uh, until we sink. Another game called Zombie Cinema. Have you guys heard of any of these games, or is this like total crazy land? We're in crazy land. Excellent. Um, zombie Cinema. Uh, these are you, most many of these games are either free or you can get them here at the show. If you're excited about something you hear, let me know and I'll point you to a booth where you can get this stuff. Uh, uh, so Zombie Cinema is a classic zombies attack kind of game, uh, but it's a quasi sort of a board game hybrid. It's a role-playing game. You've got a character, and you care about your character, uh, but uh, you're also moving things around on, a, on a, a sort of a structured board, and the spaces on that board uh, tell you what the zombies can do. So they start out at one end of the board, and they're just rumors, and every time they move forward, they get more and more real and more and more aggressive until... They're just everywhere and nothing can stop them. And the way they move is when you have conflicts with other characters. So your guy and my guy get in a fight. If we tie in that fight, the zombies move forward. Uh, so there's this implied tension between characters and it becomes very sort of paranoid and xenophobic and crazy and the zombies just keep coming. Uh, and you can, you can screw people over or push them into the zone where the zombies are, at which point they just die and become zombies. Um, it's really, it's a good game. Very fun, and it, uh, it plays in a very short amount of time. You can play a game of zombie cinema in an hour, which again is kind of weird for a role-playing game, for a tabletop role-playing game. You can have this satisfying experience in about 60 minutes. 
Um, There's a game called Monsiger 1244 that's written by a crazy Danish guy um, that is, again, a, a really interesting, really fun game. It's got this pre-built relationship map. That it tells you what characters you're going to play and puts you in an intensely themed situation that has fixed outcomes. You play Cather heretics in the 13th century, and you're, uh, the, the fortress of Monsiger is under siege by the Catholics, and in the end of the game, you're either going to renounce your heresy and become a Catholic again, or you're going to be burned alive. Those, those, are, those, are the, those are the two things that happen to you in Monsiger, right? And the whole game is about reaching the point where you have to make that decision for your character, and it is super intense. It is a really, really cool game, because that relationship map, all these characters... They have reasons to care about each other. They have reasons to want to, to live and also reasons to want to die. Uh, and so you're finding that balance as you play, and it's, uh, it's an amazing game. It's really cool. Um, Montsegur, M-O-N-T-S-E-G-U-R, uh, 1244. It's by uh, Thoughtful Games, Frederick Jensen's author. Um, there's a game called Archipelago that I talked about a little bit earlier, which is, uh, I don't know, uh, I really love Archipelago, and it's what I play more than any other game anymore. Um, and uh, the idea behind Archipelago, the guy who wrote it, Matthias Holter, was, uh, he was inspired by the Earthsea books. He wanted a game that was about traveling, about, about moving from place to place. And that metaphor sort of carries through in the game. Uh, so you've got loose turn-taking, but uh, the, the really cool thing about Archipelago is that once you create your setting, and you can literally do anything with this game, I mean, whatever setting excites you, we've played really, really unusual things with it. Uh, one time we ran a campaign where we were all dogs in Moscow that rode the subway around. <laughs> That's what we did, and it was really cool. Uh, uh, and it, was a, it, it ended up being a game about... Uh, uh, the differences between being servile and comfortable and being savage and always in danger. And uh, so there were like wild dogs, uh, you know, from the outskirts that were trying to come into our city. And we were kind of urbane and sophisticated in sort of a watership down kind of way. Uh, and it was great. It was really cool. It was a good game. But so to give you an idea of how, how diverse it can be, um, I'm in a game now where we're uh, carnival workers in the, in the 40s. Um, but you can do all kinds of stuff with it. But the idea is that um, uh, every uh, every session you author for other other players' characters a fate for them. So, like in our Subway Dogs game, maybe I would say like um, uh, your you know your dog Tima is is going to be uh, it's going to be taken in by a by a warm-hearted uh, human, and that goes that that becomes part of what we're working toward in that session of play. Like we know it's going to happen because that's his fate. And so as we play, we all know that Tima eventually has got to end up in somebody's house. And how that happens and what that means, what the implications of that are, are totally up to us, but it's going to happen. It's just destiny. Um, yeah, and so you're sort of playing to find out what happens. Uh, the, the, the thing that, the, the piece of technology in Archipelago that I think is the coolest is that um, you, you all, like Polaris, you have these ritual phrases. Like you can say, oh, it's not going to be so easy. Uh, so, you know, I might say, oh, my dog is going to attack that wild dog and rip its throat out. And somebody at the table invariably will be like, uh-uh, that's not going to be so easy. And then you draw a card, as I mentioned earlier, and, and somebody interprets that for you. Um, so, uh, so it's got phrases like that. Another one, and this is something that you can put in any game. If you take anything away from this talk, think about this. Uh, the, the, in Archipelago, there's, a, there's a, a phrase you can use called try a different way. So... Um, 
let's say we're playing a super gritty and intense game, and this guy, uh, when his scene comes along, he introduces some kind of comic relief that completely deflates the situation. Uh, it's just a, a humorous thing that's completely out of place. It's not what we agreed to. It's boring. It's no good. I know you would do it. So, <laughs> uh, so when he does that, I get to say, and I am required to say as part of the game, hey, try a different way. It's not an uh, adversarial thing. It's not me shutting down your creative contribution. It's saying, let's, let's do better than that. Let's find a better way to do that. And if you come back with something else, I can say, try a different way, man. Let's, let's make it work. Uh, and this is antithetical to gamers, typically, right? I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to hear that. And it's deeply weird to have someone say, yeah, let's just retcon that and do it again because I think we can make it even more interesting, even more challenging, even more fun. But once you do this, once, you get it, once you're in a group that is okay with that, it's a high trust thing. You have to trust and love the people you're playing with to make this work. But once you get that, it is the best technique ever. And it'll work in any game, right? Um, there's nothing unique about it to GMless games or to Archipelago. But to say, uh, you know, try it again. Let's do, let's do it better. Let's, let's, uh, let's find a way to focus this on what we, you know, what we really want out of this. You know? And the, the, the important thing about try a different way is that you need to be ready when you say it to offer something. You, you, you're being a dick if you say, oh, do it different, but I don't know how. You have to be, you have to be able to, uh, to be prepared for them to say, I don't have a different way. Do you have a different way? To be, and then at that point to say, yeah, why don't we do this? And you can, you know, negotiate. Um, I don't think this is like rocket science. I think we kind of do this informally all the time anyway. But by systematizing it and making it okay at our table, it just makes things so good. Um, I really encourage you to, to give that a try. Or to play Archipelago and see how it works there. Um, so th that's... Uh, that's kind of the stuff I wanted to talk about. I hope you can see that I'm very excited about uh, playing without a Game Master, that I, I find it a very satisfying way to, to play. It's, I think it's good for the hobby. Um, but uh, it's certainly not the only way, and I totally respect that there are people who don't want to do that or who think that that's not, uh, not something they're going to enjoy. They're probably right. Um, but uh, that's something that I really like, so I wanted to uh, share with you. Well, let's talk more about it. Um, you have questions. So, how important is collaborative world building, scene setting in that sense when it comes to a GMless game? You've got, it sounds like examples of two where one, the setting is handed to you, great ranks, uh -huh. and fiasco where you create your own setting and situation. Okay, one's handed to you, one. So, how important is that? collaborative creating in that buy-in and feeling like you have a right to author. I, I can say that because I put effort into this setting. Sure. I think um, something that, that I say a lot is that uh, constraints foster creativity, right? And uh, all of these games are going to have different kinds of constraints. I mean, you know, Pathfinder has different creative constraints on what you can and cannot introduce into the game. Uh, and these are no, no different. So to compare those two games, actually let's compare Monsager, which is extremely rigid in, in uh, characters. You're given a character, uh, and you're given their background, you're given the situation, and you're given the outcome, which is unusual for a role-playing game, that you know exactly how the game is going to end. You're going to make one choice at the, at the, in the final scene, and that's it. Uh, before that point, 
you can't, there's just, there's no quitting before you get to that point, because that's what the game's about. Um, and then you compare that to Fiasco, which is a game where you start with a, a reasonably blank slate, and then you gradually build up a, a situation that's full of tension, and, uh, and then resolve that tension, you find out what happens, and typically it's a silly disaster. Um, so uh, both of those approaches work very well, um, and uh, they lead to pretty much the same kind of interaction, the same kind of engagement. Um, the stuff that you're allowed to do in Monsiger 1244, the places where your creativity comes out, uh, is different. Uh, in that, you've got questions to answer, uh, and answering those questions is going to is going to you know tell you a lot about uh, how your game is going to go. So if you're playing Arsan, who's one of the one of the women that's uh, in the in the siege, one of the questions is whose child are you carrying? And depending on how you answer that question, it's totally going to change the game. And I've played Montsegur a dozen times, and it's always different, even though those constraints are so formalized throughout. Because your interactions uh, between characters and the answering these questions is totally different. Um, so so uh, constraints, in that case, foster creativity. And I think that either approach is totally valid. There's a question back here? Yeah. Sure. Um, I missed the name of that relationship game that you mentioned. Breaking the Ice by Emily Care Boss. And how is that not awkward? Oh, it's awkward. <laughs> oh, and one of the one of the and it's and there are procedures in place to try to sort of mitigate that and make it less awkward. One of the things that you do is figure out who sort of who you are and then make your character opposite in some way, deliberately. So if you're a man and you play a woman, if uh, you know you find something, you can do it with ethnicity or with gender, or you find some way to really distance yourself from the character, and that is very helpful. Um, or, yeah, it's, that's, that's one of the main techniques there that, uh, that makes it slightly less awkward. But uh, it's a really rewarding game to play because it, it's extremely interesting and you're telling a very, very focused story on two people and there's a lot of uncertainty. And at the end, uh, it's either, you know, a happy romance or they part ways and it's pretty interesting to find out. Other questions about uh, GM-less role-playing in general or anything I talked about? Uh, as a GM, one of the most satisfying moments I have are the kind of elaborate mystery-type stories or things where the pieces fall into place and players go, of course, the murderer was really... Uh -huh. It seems like that really wouldn't be possible in a GM-less type thing. Is it, that it's accurate? In, it's interesting. I, it, it's, in some ways, it's accurate. I think that um, the idea of a, an elaborately scripted... Uh, murder mystery would be very difficult to do uh, unless you just embrace radical transparency, um, which, which I think is totally legitimate. You could sit down and say, we're telling a story about how this guy poisoned his wife and nobody knew about it. And so as players, metagame, everybody knows exactly what everybody did, but their characters don't. And so, you know, you can, you can play that game. And, and that can be very satisfying. Uh, it can also be not satisfying if that's not your thing. But something else that I think is really interesting, and this is something I learned from improvisation, uh, like theatrical improvisation, uh, is that sometimes this stuff will just come together and it's almost spooky the way that it works. Uh, so if you, for example, uh, play a game of fiasco and posit at the beginning a mystery, that mystery will be resolved by the end of scene 16. 
and you may not exactly know how that happened. Oh, which is super cool. It's and it's because our minds are you know they they integrate information and they sort of find meaning where maybe there isn't any. And so by the time you've sort of molded around a few times and played some scenes with this this information, it it finds its own meaning, and that can be very satisfying. It's not exactly what you're talking about, but it does happen, uh, and it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty uh, it's very satisfying when it does. With Fiasco, another thing, the, uh, um, there's an aftermath to the game. There's a sort of a mechanical step at the very end where you sort of find out what happens to your characters. And uh, the aftermath is a series of uh, uh, statements. They're like, well, you know, you, you, it was very bad for you. And you're, if you're not in prison, you're in a hospital and everybody hates you. Or you're awesome and you got away with everything and things are great. Uh, and some of the things that it says are fairly specific, but it always works, uh, no matter what. It, 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 it's, I can't recall a time when I didn't look at the aftermath and, and say, that, that totally fits. It's almost uncanny how well that fits the action in the game. Uh, and again, that's just our minds integrating things, uh, disparate information, I think. So I'm, I'm good with that. The aftermath, that's part of the fiasco? Uh-huh. Yeah, fiasco's uh, structured. There are two acts, and, and in between the two acts, there's a tilt where um, something crazy happens to sort of unbalance the situation, and then, and then at the end, there's an aftermath where you find out sort of the... It's all like a denouement. You find out what happens to those characters, or if, if they're already dead to their reputation. <laughs> it's fiasco. That's how it works sometimes. Well, um, I, I hope uh, that you'll uh, consider trying some of these games I mentioned or um, uh, looking into playing without a GM. Oh, here's a question. Sort of on that note, uh, if you wanted to recommend a GMS game that was sort of not as hardcore as, you know, for, for people who have not tried this before, uh-huh. what's sort of the, the baby's first GMS game? Oh, man, you need to play Fiasco. Yeah. 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 Now, um, I wrote Fiasco, so I'm biased, but you heard a, <laughs> a lot of yeses in the room, and I think that that's accurate. It's, I, I designed it very specifically to be easy, approachable, uh, and not difficult to get into. If you want to try it, uh, there's a Games on Demand room here, room 238, uh, where people are running it all the time. And many of these games are available to, to try if you want to just spend a couple hours and a generic ticket to try it. Uh, one of the big strengths I found of Fiasco was that the mechanics tend not to happen when the role playing's happening. Uh-huh. So a lot of more, I've I've had games of D and D where like there's no role playing and it's all uh-huh. players solving puzzles. I've never had a Fiasco game like that. Is that typical of a GMless campaign, or are there a lot of mechanics in certain ones that happen? I think it varies, and and really, uh, I mean, those mechanics are happening, but they're unobtrusive right. in Fiasco, right? You're just you're like holding up a die, being like, "You guys cool with this? Is yeah. this a black scene or a white scene?" So it's still happening, but it's not really breaking your immersion. Yeah. For example, um, there are other games where. Like uh, Polaris, for example, where that's you're going to have to really sort of be on top of the procedures so that I can be like, oh, you ask far too much. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Um, you know, and, and use the, the terms that are provided as part of the game. Uh, and it varies. It really, it really does. Um, uh, and, you know, one flavor may be more to your taste than another. I didn't see the bully pulpit had a booth. Is there any place selling fiasco? Yeah. Um, you can get it from the Indie Press Revolution booth. Uh, which is in the 1200 row, or 2100, 2120, something like that. Anyway, uh, yes, it is available uh, for sale at the show.
and you should definitely, definitely buy it. Because <laughs> it's super great. Um, but I, I, all these games I mentioned I love. Some of them are available free. Uh, I raved about Archipelago. That's totally free. Just look it up on the internet. Archipelago 2 is what it's called. And uh, you can just download it and play it with your friends. Um, uh, others are uh, for sale. But uh, you, know, you can certainly, uh, until we sink, that crazy Norwegian game about the sinking island, free. You can just go download it if you want to try it. And I encourage you to, because it's weird. <laughs> Uh, other questions? Uh, it sounds like a lot of these games are like one session as a movie. Is there something that you can do to make things maybe go on for more, for longer? That's a great question. Um, and there are some games that are really designed for a single session. Fiasco is a single session game. Um, Archipelago typically is going to go three to five sessions. Um, so the, the, there's a little bit of variance there. But none of these games... There's, there's only one GMless game I know of that's really geared toward campaign play, uh, or for like a lot of sessions, multiple like 50 sessions, and that's a game called Sign In Stranger, which is about um, humans going to an alien world to colonize, to uh, live among the aliens and find out about it. Um, and that's uh, as we started playing it, assuming because we played a ton of GMless games that it was going to last three to five sessions. The resource economy in that game, we, we rapidly realized we were going to play for a long time, that it was designed for much longer play. Uh, but typically, they're either one-shots or they're designed for short, uh, short arcs. Um, and part of that is just because they, they, you know, it, it works better if, if you have some rigid constraints about pacing and timing, I think. Yeah, we we kind of dipped our toe in GMS gaming with Dungeon Bash. Okay. I didn't know if you played that. Dungeon or, Bash. I'm not even familiar with that. I'm sorry. All right. It, yeah, it's small, kind of an indie game. I'm not related to it. Um, but essentially, it's got an escalation mechanic in it. So you start out, it's, it's made for like 3.5, uh, D&D 3.5. Okay. Uh -huh. So you just create a personal character, and um, you're in a dungeon, and you basically aren't allowed to leave until you've resolved it. Oh, all right. And it's got this escalation mechanic in it where you're trying to find like a quest room. Um, which every time you open a room, you roll a die, and if it's a six, it's the quest room. Um, and of course, that's harder. Uh, I didn't know if you'd run across anything else like that. The, the, it's kind of uninspired. It, I mean, it's good for quick fix. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, it, we it, have a game for a while. I hear you. <laughs> It reminds me of the Mythic GM emulator, uh, which is another product that, that's really sort of designed to fill that role procedurally. Uh, and those can be really fun. I, I, I definitely don't have a problem with that. Um, finding ways to uh, randomize pieces of it, uh, finding ways to uh, still have the stuff that you enjoy, but uh, sort of mechanically simulating that piece. I, I'm totally down with that. I like the Mythic GM emulator, which sounds pretty similar to that. Yeah, I also, uh, a while back, took my toe trying, trying different things, but I got a game I never tried, but I just wanted to bounce off you've heard of it, um, Universalis, uh -huh. I think, I know, back years ago. It sounded really cool. I read the book, and I never had anyone I actually played it with. So well, that's... that. That's always the problem. Yeah. Um, is that it, it's pretty? Some of the stuff sounds pretty radical until you try it, um, and it's sometimes it's hard to get your friends to buy in. I I don't have an answer for that except to play Fiasco, which is is very approachable. Um, Universalis, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's a, it's designed to uh, uh, be sort of universal, uh, and your uh, your there's a resource economy about creating facts about the world. 
which is pretty cool. Um, it's it's a very interesting way to play. Um, it's not really to my taste. I don't. Uh, um, I, I find it a little too crunchy for for what I like, but uh, uh, it's solid. It's a fun game. Uh, you might have answered my question like, what was it, or what somebody else pointed out, like, what's a good one to start people getting into this? Yeah, my, my I, you know, I, I I don't mean to beat my own no, drum, but Fiasco is, a, I think, a very good point of entry. Uh, I've had a lot of experience with uh, myself facilitating groups that have never role played before. Uh, I've had a lot of experience facilitating groups of hardcore grognard third edition players, um, which is an interesting experience because those guys, they know how to role play, right? They, they know what it's about, and Fiasco is way off in left field uh, in terms of what the expectations are, and it still works. So I'm pretty confident in recommending it um, for, for both, you know, both those groups. Um, and uh, that's, that's one that I would pick. If you, if you like the theme, you like the color, um, then that's the other thing. It's got to be something that you're excited about. So if, uh, if there's a game that, you know, really grabs you, then that's probably a good one to recommend. We'll go and try these. Um, room 238, Games on Demand. There's tons of games being run there. Um, if you want to try, uh, I don't know, about half of the ones I recommended, there are people that are offering them. So uh, you, you've got a good opportunity while you're here to, uh, to try them out. Thank you. Thank you.